I hope you're not overly bored, but I'm going to read the lecture again this year like I have the last couple of years. I can cover more ground in less time that way. Before we get started, I'd like to have everyone look this way and smile. Just thought I'd take it in one last time. <laughs> My good friend David Morris is not even here to give me moral support. I'll tell you. <clears throat> oh, okay. All right. That would help. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll nod like this and you cue. <laughs> I know. And there's Phil up here too. Phil, Phil is a faithful friend. Last year I was asked to speak at a conference at the CBC convention. And they asked that the theme of the conference be... Christ in the Old Testament, and I have to say I enjoyed that a whole lot more than I'm going to enjoy this today. <clears throat> Everybody was talking about what a nice, friendly discussion we had yesterday with the dissenting views and everything, and that worked. The, the group as a whole is to be commended for that, really, seriously. But yesterday wasn't the test. Today's the test for that. <laughs> I sent a, a CompuServe note to John last week, and I said, you can introduce the lecture like this. This is a polite presentation of the people of the prophetic program according to a pig-headed premillenarian. <clears throat> you got to practice that. <clears throat> a couple people have asked if I will define the position first of all. And just in a nutshell, premillennialism simply is we believe that Christ will return prior to the establishing of the thousand-year aspect of the kingdom as it's described in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, John doesn't like the terminology millennium, but we are kind of stuck with it, John. It's the Apostle John that gave it to us, and I'd hate to take it out. Thousand years is all millennium means, and that's six times in the book of Revel or in, in Revelation chapter 20. What it means, of course, is the next step, but we're kind of stuck with the terminology. What I'd like to do, and maybe I'm a bit naive, I'm sure I am, <laughs> but I, I really get weary of hearing so much about presuppositions, hermeneutics, and all the rest of it that enters in, and it has its place and all of that, but I think that we ought to be able to settle issues exegetically. Greg Bonson wrote a significant uh, article on post-millennialism, and he issued the challenge that I think is exactly right. There is the one side that charges that the other side spiritualizes everything. And of course that's too broad a brush to paint it with. And the other side then charges back that the other side is too woodenly literal all the time. And of course that's too broad a brush. And he suggested what we need to do is get down to hand-to-hand -to -hand exegetical combat over the texts themselves. And I, I think that's exactly the advice we ought to follow. It is one of the confusing things for our people in the churches. Why are there so many different views, especially in prophecy? Why are there so many different understandings of things? And of course, there are several explanations to that. The power of bias is strong in every one of us. It's hard to overcome uh, what we've learned. And of course, there's the problem. It's just us. We have trouble interpreting the Bible consistently. If everyone were perfectly consistent in interpreting the Bible all the time, then of course, everyone would believe the same thing I do. <laughs> but that's not the way it works out. <laughs> Since I said exegesis, 
It's hard to do exegesis without reading the text. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. But the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak unto you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might have some of them. It might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so also the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. For if thou wert cut off, cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. 
For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. All right, we'll begin with our area of study. The subject assigned to me is at the same time big and controversial and yet crucial. And here I hope to settle the question in two lectures. A bit ambitious, granted, but precisely because the subject is so big and crucial, the pursuit is well worth our time. Let's just hope we're not more confused at the end than we are at the beginning. The question of the relationship of Israel and the church has received basically two answers. On the one hand, there's the view that traces back, at least as far as Augustine, that of strict continuity, the church replaces Israel in the redemptive plan of God. On the other hand, there's the strict discontinuity view, which holds that Israel and the church are two entirely different entities whose nature and destiny never have or will be confused. The first, of course, is the view of traditional Reformed theology. The second is the view of traditional dispensationalism. The question is not an isolated one. It has significant ramifications. The land promises, the interpretation of prophecy generally, the relation of the law to the church, the question of believers' seed, to name just a few. Many of you have heard me say before that I don't think either covenant or dispensational theology has a corner on the market. The truth, I think, lies somewhere between the two. On one side is the tendency, in my opinion, to overlook the major epical difference brought about by Christ's first coming and his inauguration of the kingdom of God. But on the other side, there's a tendency to overstate that division in redemptive history in a way that ignores the unity in God's purpose of redemption. But this is the passage which I think should bring us to understand it more clearly. This is, after all, the normative passage on the question. So I'd like to approach the passage itself first, if only in a survey fashion, then we'll be better positioned to look at the specific issues involved. What I mean by the normative passage there is that this is the place, and we would all have to agree on this, this is the place where Paul gives his exposition of the relationship of Israel and the church. And so this understanding of this passage is crucial to understanding the other passages that speak to the issue as well. Contextual matters. There's at least one place where I'll agree with John. It has often been my experience to hear Romans 9 through 11 described as a parenthetical excursus of some, time, some kind, more or less unrelated to what precedes and what follows, and in which Paul deals with the subject of Israel's future. That Paul here deals with Israel's future seems evident enough, but that it is a parenthetical excursus of whatever kind is a notion which I think misses the direction of Paul's argument in the epistle. That's true, I think, in two ways. First of all, the Jew-Gentile relations in the church. Beginning with his famous to the Jew first and on through the remainder of the book, Paul seems intent, among other things, of course, on fostering a practical unity among the believers in the church at Rome, which I take it consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. The gospel may have gone to the Jew first, 
And there were reasons for this. But as Paul goes on to explain in detail, both divisions of humanity equally need it. Moreover, both receive its blessings in the same way, by faith. And its privileges are equally enjoyed by both apart from the law. Still more, this unity grounded in Christ is one that has very practical ramifications in the life of the church and demands an evident manifestation of humility toward each. Within this context, chapters 9 through 11 fits very well. It is its discussion of the purpose of God and redemptive history in regard to both Jews and Gentiles should foster humility and eliminate boasting on the part of both. But there's more. Paul has been expounding the nature of justification and its attending blessings. What is becoming painfully clear to him particularly is that Israel has begun to take back seat in the divine program. Initially, Christianity consisted of almost exclusively Jewish believers. Then gradually there had become fewer and fewer until now it was a dominantly Gentile affair. It would seem that if Paul's gospel were true, that blessing comes by faith, then Israel has lost out and her promises have been annulled. So, is God's promise to his people failing? Given Israel's present state of unbelief, we are left to wonder what advantage remains for the Jew. The answer to the problem is found in the divine initiative. God himself can and will work in behalf of his chosen people again and bring them into faith and so into their promised blessings. Moreover, Paul has just expressed his firm confidence in God's decree of eternal salvation. But if Israel fails, is God's decree at all certain? The promises to us are surely no greater than the promises to them. So again, there is this need of this which is often called a theodicy. It is Paul's justification of God's dealings with humanity, a vindication of the righteousness and faithfulness of God. Now, I've jumped ahead of myself here a bit, but you see from this that chapters 9 through 11 form no parenthetical idea at all. They are part and parcel of Paul's argument. If nothing else, they serve to head off any potential objection as to the validity of his gospel. Now then we come to a survey exposition. First of all, Paul gives some explanations in light of Israel's failure. We'll not take time to analyze this entire section, but notice in passing that the privileges which were given to the nation of Israel are still hers. The adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and so on. And they are said to have advantage on account of the patriarchs. The passage reads very much like chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, which describes the advantage that belongs to the Jews. Their advantage is precisely this, Paul says. Their promises have never been revoked. But if that is so, how do we account for Israel's present failure to receive the blessing? How and why is she in unbelief? Well, whatever the answer we come to here, we may be sure that it is not as though the word of God has taken no effect. His promise has not fallen to the ground. His promise, His covenant, He'll keep. So some clarification is needed. And this Paul gives in verse 6b. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That is to say, God's blessings do not come automatically to anyone just because of physical descent. They do not come irrespective of faith. And so we come to the question, or the exposition of the doctrine of election. God demonstrated and exercised his sovereign elective rights with Isaac as over against Ishmael and with Jacob as over against Esau. This is a divine prerogative which has been exercised from the outset and it remains true. Nor is there any ground for objection. He is God. And whether we speak in terms of God as over Pharaoh or as of a 
potter as over his clay, we must acknowledge that God is free to do as he wills in his creation and dispense his blessings as he sees fit. But it is just this, divine sovereign election, that offers Israel its only hope. As Hosea and Isaiah and so many of the prophets testify, it is by God's sovereign power that Israel will be brought back to the place of blessing. God will woo her, the adulterous wife, and in the end she will come back. God's sovereignty joined with steadfast love gives reason for Israel's hope. A question arises here. Why? Here we have Israel who had the law and who in a very real sense pursued righteousness, yet they've not obtained it. And here are the Gentiles who never did pursue any such righteousness, and yet they now are obtaining it. How do we explain that? Beginning with chapter 9, verse 30, and on through, the, through chapter 10, Paul expands on the idea of Israel's culpability. She's responsible for her own actions. Her problem is not that God has rejected her, but that she has arrogantly sought her own righteousness. The very idea, Paul explains, that they should they could somehow enjoy the blessings of God by way of self-merit and apart from faith is unthinkable. Nor is it that she could not have known better. The gospel was preached to her and she rejected it. God waits all day long, yes, with open arms, but Israel remains stubborn. Now follow Paul's argument here. Paul has established at least three points in regard to Israel. One, there is yet an advantage to being of Israel. The promises were to her specifically. Two, there never was a promise of any kind that every last member of Abraham's seed would enjoy the blessings. And three, it is simply because of the unbelief of the large part of Israel today that they do not enjoy the blessing. Her failure is due to her unbelief and rejection of Christ. Next then we come to deal with God's purposes for Israel more directly. This is the second step in Paul's argument, an analysis of Israel's failure. The first point he makes is that Israel's failure is not total. After the strong indictment of Israel for her rebellion in spite of God's patience, the question naturally arises, I say then, has God cast away his people? That is, this condition that characterized Israel in Isaiah's day persists in Paul's day. Will it continue indefinitely? We might expect here to read that, in fact, God will indeed allow his people to persist in their rebellion forever. They deserve no better. But the apostle answers the question with a resounding no. God forbid, and for several compelling reasons. One, the character of God demands it. The wording of the question in the Greek suggests a negative answer, but it's not just the grammar. They are, after all, his people. Now that kind of talk has necessary implications, and whatever else it may imply, Paul argues, it implies that no, he most certainly has not cast them away. The very question harkens back to a host of promises designed to give just this assurance. For example, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Paul's exasperation at the thought is a well-grounded one. There is something singularly abhorrent about the thought of God casting off his people. It would make him a liar. God may well make certain kinds of changes along the way in the history of redemption, but the promises remain. They must remain if God is true. But there's more. The conversion of Paul demonstrates it. Paul goes on to point out that he, the apostle of the Gentiles, was himself an Israelite. Given the Israelite that he was the blaspheming persecutor of the church, his participation in grace establishes well the fact that God is not through with the nation. For him, 
This is a sample illustration of God's continuing mercy. In fact, Paul goes on to explain, He is but one of a promised remnant according to the election of grace. And yet, while, while the majority of Israel has been judicially hardened, Paul joins David in a kind of merciful prayer of imprecation, hoping that God's stern dealings with them will bring them to their senses. In any case, Paul points out Israel's failure is not total. Next, he points out Israel's failure is not final. Notice the question of verse 11a. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Again, the construction suggests a negative answer, but there's more to the issue than grammar. Paul gives his reasoning here. Answer number one. That, that is, that they stumbled that they should fall, that is unthinkable. God forbid. This idea, too, Paul implies, would be blasphemous. It would prove God unfaithful to his covenanted word. Answer number two. There's good reason for their temporary loss. Their failure is designed in the plan of God to bring about Gentiles in gathering. Through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And of course, this is precisely the history of those early days of the apostolic mission. The first converts and churches were Jewish. But then there was the decision. It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. This accords well with Jesus' words also. Therefore the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. For a time it seemed that the flood of divine blessings seemed all dammed up in Israel. But by their unbelief it has spilled over to the Gentiles. This, Paul argues, is precisely the divine design in redemptive history. Answer number three. Gentile ingathering will result in Jewish regathering. By a quotation of Deuteronomy 32.21, Moses' prophecy of Israel's fall and restoration, Paul establishes the final step in the divine program of the ages. The fall of Israel was designed to bring about Gentile conversion. In turn, the conversion of the Gentiles is designed to provoke Israel to jealousy and so effect her restoration to faith. Answer number four. Jewish regathering will result in worldwide blessing. These verses form a kind of logical analysis of the entire scenario. If the fall of Israel meant blessing to the world, what should we expect from her restoration? The question is excitingly suggestive. Here Paul, in verses 16 to 24, employs the two analogies in order to illustrate his point in two directions. The first fruit and the root I take in connection with Abraham, the one through whom the blessing was promised. Perhaps it would be a bit more precise to say it's the Abrahamic covenant that's in view. In either case, it should be expected that if the first fruit and the root are holy, so will be the entire loaf and tree. Given the nation's natural connection to Abraham, it's to be expected that she will not come to ultimate ruin. She will come again to the place of blessing. To use Paul's words, she will be grafted in again. Along with this comes a warning detected primarily to the Gentiles, and it's one that enjoins both humility and perseverance. If these natural branches were cut off for unbelief, there is no room for boasting. Moreover, it is Israel's tree. The Gentile place of blessing is one of grace through faith, and just as no individual Israelite can lay claim to the blessings by reason of descent alone, so no Gentile can boast as though he has a personal right to be here. By the way, 
just a practical suggestion here so far as our preaching is concerned. Paul's warning there, I think, is, a, is one that has such serious implications. Israel was the natural branch, and she was cut off because of unbelief. Apply that, Paul is saying here, by extension, to the United States. We've enjoyed blessings too, and it's very clear that God has blessed us. Great Britain, the same way. Do we think then that we have a right to be here? Paul says, don't boast like that. You're in because of faith. Paul concludes his illustration by emphasizing his point. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? That is to say, Israel's return to the place of blessing is not only possible, it's highly probable. Conclusion then, Israel's blessing is certain. Verses 25 to 27. All this is a mystery about which we should not be ignorant. Israel is for now not enjoying her blessing. It is the time of the Gentiles. That the Gentiles should enjoy the blessing apart from Israel is something the prophets never told us. But this mystery, that is previously unrevealed truth, a secret, Paul now reveals. And he says this condition will not last forever, only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And here his argument reaches its climax. Up to now he has spoken primarily in terms of possibility and then probability. But now he says Israel's blessing is certain. Israel's blindness is merely in part and temporary. But that she will have her blessing is a matter of recorded prophecy. This is all strikingly reminiscent of that famous story of the young boy in a London hospital who wanted to see the king. When the king came to visit, the boy didn't recognize him because he wore no crown or kingly robes. Paul's picture of Israel here is something like that. Their long-awaited king came, but he's not what they might have expected. He came in humility and derision, and he was oppressed. And so they missed him, and missing him, they missed all the promised blessings that he affords. But in that day when their deliverer comes out of Zion, he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, and this in keeping with covenanted promises. In the end, it sounds much like Zechariah. They shall look on me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only child. Or in the words of Isaiah, they will cry, He grew up before us as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He had no form nor comeliness, and when we saw him, there was no beauty that we should have desired him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not." Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. In light of Paul's teaching here, it is not difficult at all to see these prophecies fulfilled finally in relation to their original and stated audience. They'll not miss him then. This is precisely Paul's argument. Their fall is not final. And that is a matter of prophetic record. I want to insert something here. It's a copy of a sermon preached by Charles Spurgeon, June 16, 1864. And the occasion of it was uh, in the aid of the funds of the British Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Jews. The title of the message is The Restoration and Conversion of the Jews taken from Ezekiel 37. 
And he quotes a hymn from his hymnal in his sermon. Yet not in vain, or Israel's land, the glory yet will shine. And he, thy once rejected king, Messiah shall be thine. The nations to thy glorious light, O Zion, yet shall throng. And all the listening islands wait to catch the joyful song. In summary, yes, Israel seems now to be our enemy so far as the gospel is concerned, and so she is. But as touching the election, she is beloved because of the patriarchs. Just this one thing remains to be said. What does all this make you think about God? Here he chose a specific man out of whom he would out of whom would come the nation of his choosing and blessing. Yet by leaving that nation for a time to, uh, to its unbelief, he has brought blessing to us who deserve it even less. Yet by that he has determined to provoke his people back to faith and so bring about worldwide blessing. If all this strikes you as a great unfolding drama, then you have Paul's point. This is God's purpose in history. And in all that is revealed a God whose sovereignty and wisdom and power and grace are all indescribably marvelous. God has indulged us, sinners, and has interrupted our mad rush to hell and determined to bring us to glory. That is all to His unspeakable and unfathomable praise. What a wonderful God He is. We'll deal with the interpretive issues then in the next session. <laughs> Thank you. He's still smiling. <clears throat>
Okay, I said, maybe I did misapply the verse. But still it is true, is it not, that the more strictly one adheres to the truth, the more he will find himself in the minority. It is also true that those who believe that the Bible is true as written will be labeled crassly literal and have other such unchristian epithets cruelly hurled at them by those who find themselves with no substantive argument. <laughs> and I put P.S. Is all this a taste of what Bunyan will be like? He says, at last you have found me out. Since I have no substantive argument and am reduced to hurling unchristian epithets at those who are far wiser than I, I am now forced to rethink my position. By the time Bunyan Conference begins, I will no doubt have joined the despised minority and we all will dwell in perfect unity as we discuss the matter of eschatology. I anxiously await your witty reply. <clears throat> Perhaps you will be able to guide me in the way more perfectly. I wrote back and simply said, no wit necessary, just thankful expressions of praise to the Lord for his gracious, ever patient, and unerring direction of yet another stray sheep. <laughs> we rejoice to hear of your conversion. Thank you so much for sharing the good news. <laughs> I've decided, by the way, since he has converted back to amillennialism, I understand, that since we were having trouble, as John mentioned last night, paying DJ, that DJ could just have Randy's pay for the week and it would work out all right. <clears throat> okay, some interpretive issues. Page 8. If you don't have a paper, raise your hand, we'll get you one. I think Dennis up here needs one. Dan, would you get some papers and hand them out back there? <clears throat> Keep your hand up and we'll make sure you get it. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, over here. All right, page eight. We now will get to some of the interpretive issues that are so much fun in Romans chapter 11. First off, the meaning of Israel. The term Israel occurs a total of 11 times in our passage. It seems at first glance that the term has a consistent significance throughout. However, in two of its occurrences, there's been dispute. The first and last. In 9.6, Paul affirms that they are not all Israel which are of Israel. This is popularly taken to be a justification for the idea that the term may include believing Gentiles, that Paul is affirming that all who believe, Jew or Gentile, are a part of the true Israel. And quite frankly, when this assertion is made, it is usually made in conjunction with and in fact rests on a misquotation of the verse. For these, the verse reads, they are not all of Israel who are Israel. I trust that I'm not misrepresenting the other side here, but this has been my experience almost without exception. It is clear that Paul is speaking here of a true Israel. That is beyond question. But it is also clear that he is speaking in reference to ethnic Israelites. In these verses, there is a narrowing of the focus, not a widening. It is not Ishmael and Isaac, but, Ish, but Isaac alone who is the seed. It is not Jacob and Esau, but Jacob. 
The focus narrows within Israel. It does not widen out. But this is plain not only by the surrounding context, but also by the very wording of the statement here. The true Israelites are those within Israel who believe. Paul is not merely contrasting men of faith from men of unbelief. He is contrasting men of faith within Israel from men of unbelief within Israel. His whole frame of reference at this point is the physical descendants of Abraham. What he asserts is that the term Israel, in its truest and most meaningful sense, does not belong to every child of Abraham. The verse is really so plain on this point that we should need to spend no more time on it. Paul refines the significance of the term here, but he does not change its basic meaning to include Gentiles. When Paul lists these promises that belong, present tense, to Israel, at least two options were available to him. <clears throat> the replacement hermeneutic would expect Paul to proceed to show how these privileges are now realized in the church and then expound on this significance. This is plainly what Paul does not do. He shows instead how they belong to Israel herself and how they have not become ineffectual for them. They offer no less a real hope today than ever. From here until 1126, the meaning of Israel is not debated. It unquestionably continues to refer to ethnic Israel. In fact, the related term Israelite is used twice in the context also and quite obviously can refer to no one other than those of ethnic Israel. Finally, there's the use of the term in 1126. All Israel shall be saved. That this refers to a national conversion of ethnic Israel is its plainest and most immediate sense, and that must be frankly admitted by all. But there are at least two major alternative interpretations that have been offered, one which we'll consider here and the other a bit later. It is contended by some that Paul here summarizes the salvation of all of God's elect, Jew and Gentile. All Israel is, according to this interpretation, all of the redeemed. This interpretation is impossible for several reasons. For starters, there is no clue or hint of any kind in the statement that the word has changed meaning so. Throughout this section, Israel has, in its ten other occurrences, meant ethnic Israel. In verse 25, all admit that Paul is speaking of ethnic Israel. If in the very next verse, the very same sentence in the original, according to the UBS punctuation, Paul intends a different meaning, there must be some indicator, some reason to know why. To simply assume that he does so is exegetical chaos. Worse, <clears throat> the interpretation misses the whole flow of Paul's argument in chapter 11. The question under discussion has to do with the destiny of ethnic Israel, chapter 11 and verse 1. This verse is the climax of that argument, and so Israel will all be saved. And to turn in another direction is unwarranted. Further, his phrase, all Israel, stands in contrast to the remnant within Israel discussed earlier, and, for which, Paul, and which for Paul was evidence that God was not through with the nation. In that day, he says, not a remnant only, but the nation itself will be saved. Still more difficult for this view is the fact that Paul proceeds to explain his statement in the following verses. And to take this interpretation into verse 28 would be absurd. Who's the enemy after all? And so we are left, according to this interpretation, with one term lifted out and given a different meaning from that all of its other occurrences, and that against the flow of thought and without any explanation or warning. It appears evident that the motivation behind such a conclusion is not an exegetical one. Curiously, Paul begins this section in 11.1 with a question about the destiny of ethnic Israel as a people. 
Will they be cast off forever as a people? Paul says no. The replacement interpretation says yes. There's still another consideration. In verse 29, Paul grounds his conclusion that all Israel will be saved on the immutability of God's decree and promise. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That is, God's decree can never be altered. And with that, Paul condemns the replacement idea on theological grounds. It is not just a strange, but a dangerous idea that God's election may be altered. How could God's election be changed into rejection? Under what circumstances could we consider God's election to be transferred from one to another? Yet this is precisely what is necessary if the church has somehow replaced Israel. And that is an implication which we Calvinists should particularly abhor. Let me digress for a moment and point out that this highlights one of the most glaring weaknesses of the church replaces Israel view. It is conveniently selective in dealing with God's ancient promises. It is suspiciously able, at will, to choose which of the ancient promises are still in force and in what sense. The promises of rejection are interpreted literally in reference to ethnic Israel. Just as easily, the promises of restoration and blessing are interpreted figuratively in reference to the church. This is a long way from Paul's approach here. And again, I have to say that this kind of hermeneutic is not exegetically driven. Next, Paul's interpretation of Hosea. Closely related to this discussion, Israel's relation to the church, is the question of how the, apostles in nine, the apostle in 925 and 26 interprets the prophecy of Hosea. It is alleged that his reference to Jews and Gentiles in verse 24 shows the Hosea prophecy of Israel's restoration to now be reinterpreted to include both Gentiles and Jews in the church. It is generally argued next that this is the apostolic model of prophetic interpretation and it gives us the clue as to what Israel now means and how prophecies concerning Israel should be interpreted. This approach to hermeneutics is a fair one, but it must be examined. Does Paul apply the prophecy of restored Israel to the salvation of the Gentiles? And if so, in what sense? Just what is Paul saying and why does he appeal to Hosea for support? Upon examination of the passage, the suggestion does not appear to be so well grounded. Hosea plainly prophesies a restoration of Israel to her place of prominence. And this Paul nowhere repeals. There is a connection, however, and is one of an analogy. Significant is the fact that Paul does not speak of Hosea here as fulfilled. He introduces the prophecy as an analogy, hos, or as. The idea of analogy is all that can be forced from Paul's wording, and this much is widely admitted by interpreters such as John Murray and Charles Hodge, men who certainly have no premillennial acts to grind. The sense of the citation then is that what God is doing for Gentiles finds a parallel in what God has promised to do for Israel. But I think there is more to be said still. What sort of analogy is Paul drawing? The analogy, I think, is not so much an ethnic one as it is a soteriological one. Paul seems to be comparing not the two ethnic groups merely, but the manner in which they are called. Interestingly, Paul alters the wording of Hosea from I will say to I will call. Paul is continuing to stress the idea of divine initiative and salvation. It is his sovereign call that effects the change. God's electing grace is the source of blessing for Jews and Gentiles alike. And what he is doing now among the Gentiles, he is doing also for the remnant within Israel and will do eventually for Israel herself. 
This is the analogy that Paul is making, and that, while ethnic Israel remains the focus of his argument on through the end of the chapter. His point has not to do with the relationship of Jews and Gentiles, but with the sovereignty of God in calling his elect, whether Jew or Gentile. This divine activity continues throughout the age of redemptive history, whoever its object may be. It's an interpretive mistake to just assume that a quotation of an Old Testament prophecy indicates its fulfillment. This is just not necessarily so, particularly when the citation is made with the language of analogy. At any rate, Paul's citation of Hosea lends no weight to the idea that Israel and the church are one and the same. The idea draws more from the passage than the passage itself offers. And now the big one, the meaning of kaihutos, and so, verse 26, is Paul's conclusion, and so all Israel shall be saved. It is not uncommon to hear popularizers of the no future for Israel persuasion touting with great confidence. Notice, Paul doesn't say, and then all Israel shall be saved. He says, and thus all Israel shall be saved. Their suggestion, of course, that Paul's thus all Israel shall be saved is tantamount to in this way, that is, by both Jews and Gentiles coming to faith, all Israel will be saved. We've already seen, however, that this is both theological and exegetical chaos. It shifts meanings of words in the same sentence and asks us to accept a transference of God's elective decree. But there is still more that militates against the interpretation. There's little debate that the term hutos, can have a temporal sense then. C.K. Barrett and F.F. Bruce, neither of whom have any premillennial bias, take this view. However, I prefer rather to understand the term as having its more usual comparative force, so or in this manner. But even so, there is little change of the obvious temporal or chronological sense. This event, the salvation of all Israel, is to occur following the time of Gentile conversion and prominence, not alongside of it. Moreover, in verses 23 and 24, Paul speaks of Israel in the future tense as being grafted in again, an idea plainly contrary to this view. Further, this is the climax of Paul's argument begun in 11.1. The question has to do with Israel's destiny. He has been building to this conclusion all along, and to understand this conclusion in any other sense is to take a hermeneutical turn that the text itself simply does not endorse. The salvation of the nation, Paul affirms, will occur in this manner, that is, when these preconditions have been fulfilled. And this is not far at all from the idea of then. Others, admitting to the overwhelming evidence that, God, that Paul's reference here is to ethnic Israel, argue that the statement has to do with the final tally of the saved from within Israel throughout the church age. All Israel, in this view, means all of the elect of Israel who in the end have been saved. Paul has been showing that the remnant will continue, and in the end they will all, that is, all of the remnant, be saved. To paraphrase, And thus, by the age-long continuous provoking of Israel's remnant to jealousy, all the elect of Israel will be saved. Through the writings of Herman Ritterboss, William Hendrickson, O. Palmer Robertson, and chiefly Anthony Hokema, this has become a rather popular view and demands some attention. The view is not new. Ian Murray in The Puritan Hope points out that it was promoted in the early 17th century but subsequently uniformly rejected by the English and Scottish Puritan exegetes. The view has been thoroughly examined by amillennialist John Murray in the Epistle of the Romans 
and soundly rejected again. It is suspiciously interesting, by the way, that neither Hokema nor Robertson give even a notice to Murray's arguments, even though his work preceded theirs by some 15 years. That, to me, is, has to be an embarrassing observation. Uh, John Murray is a giant of the amillennialists that all sides have to admit, and that when a fellow amillennialist writes a view contrary and doesn't treat the most thorough ar treatment of their view, and they don't give even a notice to it, I think is strong silence. The arguments which militate the view are many, militate against the view are many. First, as Murray points out, the idea of all the elect of Israel will be saved is at best a tautology, a truism hardly worthy of mention as the climax of an argument about Israel's destiny. It fits nowhere into Paul's discussion at this point and completely ignores the significance of the mystery mentioned in verse 25. That the elect of Israel, the remnant, will be saved is no mystery at all. Moreover, Paul is not dealing with the salvation of Israel's remnant so much as he's dealing with the Israel itself, the people. This is the climax. The remnant was brought into his discussion earlier as, as illustrative of the future of the whole. The remnant is an earnest of the future hope. And this is its only function in Paul's argument. To speak of the final salvation of all who are a part of the remnant is merely to speak of the remnant. And Paul here is speaking of all Israel in contrast to the remnant. He's speaking in terms of a reversal of fortune from stumbling and falling to fullness, from cast away to received, and from unbelief and cut off to grafted in again. Israel's remnant is now in the minority. The majority is lost. But in that day the situation will be reversed, and Israel's majority will come to faith. Still further, the terms fullness and acceptance demand a future condition that is in sharp contrast with Israel's present condition. It is no continuance of mere remnant status, quo, remnant status quo that is in view. At present, Israel stumbles and is hardened so that only the remnant chosen in grace believes. This is the point of contrast, and it is the fullness and acceptance that is in view up through and including verse 26. Similarly, this view does not square with Paul's language in verse 7. There Israel is an unbelief, and the remnant is in faith by virtue of God's election. But if Israel is now in unbelief, that is Israel's majority, then it is difficult to see how all Israel can be explained in terms of a saved remnant. Then there's the issue of chronological sequence. Israel is now cut off, but will, you, but will be grafted in again. The remnant was never cut off in the first place. Israel's partial blindness will last only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Again, as stated earlier, this event, the salvation of all Israel, is to occur following the time of Gentile conversion and prominence, not alongside it. There is to be a reversal of fortune, again and until, is terminology that is powerfully expressive of chronological sequence and in context of eschatology. Further, this view changes the meaning of Israel, not only from within its context, that is, its 11 occurrences in chapters 9 through 11, but even within the same sentence. Now granted, Paul does something similar to this in 9.6, but there he gives clear indication that he is doing so. There, Israel stands in stated contrast to of Israel, and it is a plainly pivotal point of Paul's argument. However, there are no such indicators in this verse, and not only are there no such indicators that he's doing so, there are plenty of indicators to the contrary. 
This interpretation misses Paul's point entirely. To suggest such a shift here is not exegesis at all. It is eisegesis. The thought must be imported from elsewhere. Next, this view does not square with verse 15. It's easy to understand, Paul is saying, that when the nation as a whole returns to the Lord, there will be worldwide ramifications. But it is not so easy to see how he could be saying that the one-by-one conversion of the remnant will have the same effect. Again, there's the simple observation of Paul's flow of thought in chapter 11. His point throughout verses 11 through 32 is plainly that, of, that Israel's fall is not final. There will be a better day. Finally, there is the time frame that's involved. Verse 24 speaks in the future tense. This is not something occurring at the present. And that Paul's reference to the deliverer from Zion is an eschatological one is widely agreed among the commentators and for good reason. Connected as it is to Paul's summary argument and the culmination of, Paul, of God's purpose in history, it could not refer only to his first advent. Israel's blessing will attend the return of Christ. Relation of Israel and the church. So then, what is the relation of Israel and the church? One hermeneutical lesson rising out of this passage is this. If we can speak of a promised future for ethnic Israel in any sense, then it is impossible to speak of her as being replaced by the church. Now, even though I've put it in italicized words, I want to read it again. I want you to catch it. If we can speak of a promised future for ethnic Israel in any sense, then it is impossible to speak of her as being replaced by the church. It is, not, is it not impossible to see how an entity can both have its own promised blessings and yet be replaced by another entity which will have those blessings instead? Now, what I mean here, what I'm getting at, is that you have, as a result of John Murray's influence largely, a growing number of amillennialists who are admitting that Romans 11 is speaking of a future for ethnic Israel in some sense and they will take it in terms of evangelism only. That is, there will be a wide-scale conversion among Israel. My point here is, if you admit that much only, you can't, on the other hand, speak of Israel being replaced. You can't have it both ways. You can't have a future for her in a specific ethnic sense of any kind, and at the same time speak of her blessings being replaced. The replacement theory is just too simplistic. Paul's teaching is more complex than that. In keeping with the tree analogy, we must say that there is very real unity between Israel and the church. This would be in contradiction to the traditional dispensational teaching, but the fact remains that there is but one tree. And in this tree, the two are brought together into one, and that with a common root. Yet, there are two types of branches, and Paul never goes so far as to confuse them. Nor do the pruned branches lose their distinctive place in God's program. And that's a point that's often overlooked in the treatment of this passage. The pruned branches do not lose their distinctive place in God's program. There are natural branches and there are wild branches. And in the end, they will be brought together in a unified and complete people of God. But the terminology is never confused. That is a hermeneutical move that goes beyond the express warrant of the text. One might have expected that since Israel is an unbelief, and that so stubbornly, 
This branch will remain cut off forever. The tree belongs now to the wild branches. Or we might expect that since this is the apostle of the Gentiles who is writing, and since he elsewhere stresses so, the unity of the body of Christ, what we are about to read of the, of the branches we are about to read of the branches being blended together and a new kind of hybrid tree developing. But this is precisely what we do not read. God's purpose is defined otherwise. There is distinction within unity. It's common to identify the tree itself as true Israel. The text doesn't go that far. To be sure, Abraham is the root, at least the Abrahamic promises. But does it necessarily follow that the tree is Israel? And then does it necessarily follow that the church is Israel? The text doesn't make that conclusion. It is an unwarranted jump. It at least goes a step beyond Paul's language. It would be closer to Paul's language simply to see Abraham as the root, as the root and the tree as the people of God, of which Israel was a part naturally, and to which we Gentiles have been grafted. I don't think that this conclusion rests on any next step assumptions, but simply takes the illustration as it stands. This has the advantage, the added advantage, of allowing the plainest sense of the passage to stand. There is a future for ethnic Israel. This would have a further advantage, by the way. The first impression given when reading the New Testament is that the church and Israel are indeed distinct at least in some sense. This view allows that impression to stand, and while at the same time allowing for the very real unity that exists between them. We should mention, at least in passing, Paul's mention of the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16, which is often understood to be the designation of the church as Israel. That is not at all the only option open in the text. We have already seen in Romans 9.6 that the Israel of God is the believing remnant within ethnic Israel. This is the true Israel. I have to ask why Galatians 6.16 6, need be any different. And what a nice touch. After arguing so against these Judaizers who think themselves to be the true and loyal remnant of Israel, Paul pointedly remarks at the end of his letter that only these Israelites of faith are the Israel of God. This interpretation fits very well in its own context and that of Romans 9-11. It seems to me to be much more comfortable. In short, I see no exegetical necessity for the church replacement view in Galatians 6.16, particularly in light of Paul's other teaching on the subject. It is very simply demonstrable in the New Testament that the church has been brought in to enjoy many of the promised blessings to Israel. Hence, it is often argued that this is the New Testament's reinterpretation of the Old Testament promises, that is, that the church takes the place of Israel. There are three flaws in this reasoning. One, it is not just the New Testament writers that speak of these Gentile blessings. The pro prophets themselves spoke of it. Indeed, the very first expression of the Abrahamic promise stated that Abraham, in Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, if the prophets could speak in these terms without identifying the Gentiles with Israel, why should it be necessary to see the New Testament writers doing so? That Gentiles are being admitted to Israel's blessing in no way cancels or alters the promises as originally given. For such alteration we must demand expressed warrant. Pointing out similarities of theological category just will not suffice. Number two, the argument assumes that unity means identity. There is no denial here that Israel and the Gentiles have been brought together into one. 
but it is simply wrong-headed to assume that this demands absolute identification. That they are one does not at all mean that they are the same. As with God the Father and the Son, who are one, sharing all the same attributes, we would not to want to identify the one with the other. So we can say that while the church is brought into the blessings of Israel, Israel does not thereby become the church. Third, it overlooks Paul's idea of mystery in verse 25, that Gentiles should share in Israel's blessing was not hidden at all. Israel's prophets plainly spoke of it. But that the Gentiles should enjoy these blessings apart from Israel was something heretofore unrevealed. This is the mystery which Paul claims now to make known. Now, if the mystery is that Israel's blinding is only partial and temporary, and that for Gentile inclusion, well then the prophecy that Israel herself will inherit the promise still stands. In the end, then, we must speak of both a continuity and a discontinuity between Israel and the church. The general impression given in the scripture is that Israel represents the visible manifestation of the people of God under the Old Covenant, and the church represents the visible manifestation of the people of God under the New Covenant. But the language employed is not always so cut and dried. Both the Old and the New Testaments speak of a present participation of the church in the blessings promised to Israel, particularly in the New Covenant. Yet the promises stand that Israel will yet enjoy these blessings herself. Neither the strict continuity approach nor the strict discontinuity approach fit very well with all of this. And if the scriptures leave the matter here and do not make that next step of identifying the one with the other, it is surely best that we be content with the same. We can deny neither the unity nor the distinctiveness of the two. They each have their own distinctiveness, yet they are united in one people with one faith and ultimately with one destiny. I'd like to mention something here. John has a book back there, Abraham's Four Seeds. And he mentions, I wrote them down here as I remember them, the natural seed of Abraham, which is all of Abraham's descendants, the special natural seed of Abraham, which he says is the nation of Israel. Then he speaks of the spiritual seed of Abraham, which is all believers in Christ. Then he speaks of the fourth one, the unique seed of Abraham, which is Christ himself. I don't have any quarrel with that at all. I think John is right. Now, the only addition I would make to that, John has been, I think, criticized by some for making too many seeds of Abraham. I'd like to say he didn't make enough. There's a fifth one rising out of this text, and that is keeping John's terminology, we would have to say it's the spiritual, special, natural seed of Abraham. That is the believing remnant within Israel. And I think that's plainly what Paul is getting at here. Chapter 9 and verse 6 is the easiest summary of that. All right, and now to the fun part. Eschatology and the millennial question. Here's a brief summary of the evidence for a distinct future for ethnic Israel that we have gleaned from Romans 11. One, the sustained contrast between now and then. Two, the terminology fullness and acceptance. Three, the very question raised in 11.1, which governs the entire discussion. Four, the fact that Israel's blindness is not final. Five, the future tense in verse 24. 
6, the parousia language of verse 26. 7, the unalterability of God's election, verse 29. And 8, God's explicit affirmation of the unending certainty of Israel's promises and covenants. But we have not yet addressed the question of millennial systems. And this is the theme of our conference, and I'm supposed to say how this passage lends weight to premillennialism. So, what does this passage, Romans 9-11, to say to the millennial question specifically? I frankly admit, not a lot. But there are a few details that hint in this direction. Number one, an earthly kingdom within history. First, in 1115, Paul characterizes the situation of the world following Israel's acceptance as life from the dead. Some have taken this to be literal resurrection, and if that is so, then premillennialism seems to fit the scenario better. However, I'm not ready to climb out on that limb. I don't think Paul is speaking of physical resurrection. I think he's using metaphorical language. But if so, then what is he implying? The program, he says, is one, Jewish hardening and Gentile blessing, two, Jewish jealousy and conversion, three, unprecedented worldwide blessing, life from the dead. I frankly cannot see how that fits very well into an amillennial scheme, but it does sound very much like the premillennial one, and in fact it, fit, it would fit even with the postmillennial one. It sounds like he is describing a universal kingdom in which righteousness dominates, and that in turn Sounds like Paul's renewed earth anticipated in chapter 8. Then there's the further observation that Paul is dealing here with God's purpose in history. This seems to lie just on the surface of the text in chapter 11. The passage speaks of history's restoration, how that history itself will come to glorious fruition. In verse 15, he describes a time of unprecedented worldwide blessing, something we must define in terms of gospel advance at the very least. This, as also the consideration of the preceding paragraph, fits well with either a pre- or a post-millennial scheme. However, verses 25 and 26 place this restoration after the coming of Christ, hence premillennialism. But for the amillennialist, this age is never restored, but simply ended. As some have said, like throwing a brick through a television screen, and righteousness will prevail only in the eternal state. This is not at all Paul's outlook. He envisions a happy conclusion to history. Next, the earthly kingdom, the land promise, and the ground of Paul's argument. It should be noted further that the ground on which Paul bases his hope of the future conversion of all Israel is nothing other than Israel's ancient covenants. In 1129, Paul says this directly. In 1126 and 27, he cites by way of support and explanation a composite of passages from the Old Testament. The language is reminiscent of more passages, particularly from the prophets in which the Davidic, Abrahamic, and New Covenants are held in view for the people. Significantly, these same passages speak to a time when Israel in her own land will again enjoy her prominence among the nations. Now clearly, no amillennialist will want to admit this. But then, how are we to explain Paul's appeal to these very passages? Are we to understand Paul as limiting their fulfillment to a soteric sense only? And if so, why? 
The prophets certainly did not understand their word to be so restricted. They plainly held out a hope of salvation and restoration to the land and Israelite prominence among the nation. The hope of forgiveness which they offered the people was inseparably linked to and formed the basis of these other hopes. Hence their equally vigorous heralding of all of them. Nor does Paul indicate such a stripping away of the prophet's message. Indeed, at the very outset of the discussion, he affirms these covenants to indeed still belong to Israel. And at the collusion, he reaffirms the same. The question then is this. What exegetical warrant is there for allowing only a part of the covenant's promises, that is the forgiveness of sins, and not, a, not the whole of them? In fact, if we would consider these covenants as still in force, the result would sound much like 1115. And again, this fits very well with the premillennial scheme, but it is at this point the amillennialist must do some wiggling. Nor is this an isolated argument. The prophets plainly and repeatedly spoke with, of the inviolability and unending certainty of Israel's covenants. Paul alludes to and cites a sampling of these, noteworthy of which is his allusion in 11.8 to Deuteronomy 29.4. There Moses is promising the eventual realization of the land promise to Israel. He even explains that while this is conditioned on Israel's faith, Israel will nonetheless enjoy the promise because God in grace will bring them back from their stubborn disobedience. It is often argued that since the land promises are not repeated in the New Testament, it is clear that they have been reinterpreted or Christified to be realized in union with Christ, that is, that Christ is the land. There are several flaws in this line of reasoning. First, it seems to empty the promises of their stated significance and render the words meaningless. Far worse, it assumes that the old promises, so solemnly and so repeatedly made, are no longer valid as given unless the New Testament says so directly. But the Old Testament was the Bible of the early church and of the apostles, and it seems that this approach to their scriptures would have struck them as particularly pernicious. Abrogation of these solemnly made promises demands more than silence. Both the holy prophets and the apostles speak with continuing authority. Furthermore, the very premise of the argument is faulty. Is the New Testament silent on the subject of Israel and her land? The Gentile focus of the New Testament surely accounts for what silence there may be, and in fairness this must be admitted. But even so, I'm not at all sure the silence is as real as it is said to be. There is much more data available than is often admitted to the discussion. For example, there are necessary implications of terminology such as in the regeneration, reclining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that, by the way, while the sons of the kingdom are being cast into outer darkness. And several times the second coming is expressly linked with Palestine, the Mount of Olives, the flight on the Sabbath day, the temple. And then there's Jesus' direct prophecy that Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the Gentiles, times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Of course, there's much more, particularly in the book of Revelation. At any rate, it is gratuitous to simply dismiss all of these things out of hand and then claim that the New Testament's silent on the subject of Israel and her land in the eschaton. It is often assumed that Joshua 21:45 declares a full and final realization 
of God's covenanted promises to national Israel. But the verse does not say that at all. Joshua was merely claiming that God had come good on all he had said. That in no way rules out a further and fuller realization of the same promises. This is evidenced by the later announcements of the prophets that God was yet to give Israel her land, and that is a permanent possession. In other words, Joshua was not at all saying, this is it, that's all. He was merely showing God's faithfulness in doing as he said he would do. And if that is so, then the verse does not end the discussion of Israel's inheritance of the land. Now I have a footnote there, and it goes something like this. We are told on the one hand that Israel's land promises were realized in Joshua's statement here in Joshua 21. The land promises were fulfilled. Okay. Then they go on to say that the land is Christ. I'd like to ask, which one is it? You can't have both. There's, a, there's a, an argument that I like to call the hole in the bucket fallacy. The story of the uh, fellow who borrowed a bucket from his neighbor, and then when he returned it, the man came back to him and said there was a hole in the bucket. And the man in his own defense says, there was no hole in the bucket when I returned it to you. Furthermore, there was a hole in the bucket when you gave it to me in the first place. Can't have both. And that argument seems to be just like that. It's like, well, this argument really won't work. And if it doesn't, we better have this one. So we'll say it's fulfilled in Joshua, but then when they find out it really wasn't because the prophets were saying otherwise, well, then we'll have to go to this other one and say it's fulfilled in the land. It's just gratuitous arguing. In conclusion, in the end, we are left to say with Paul, yes, God is doing in Gentiles what he has not yet been pleased to do in Israel. Their blindness is partial and temporary and for the benefit of the Gentiles. We have been allowed to share in her blessings. But it does not follow that the church has superseded Israel or that the old promises are abrogated. This is to go beyond the language of Scripture. Unity there is, but with distinction.